Hello, and welcome back to the Whiskey Rebels, the only podcast about alcohol where the hosts aren't getting drunk. I'm Drew Brackbill. I'm Josh Evans. And I'm John Nelson. And we're back today with another balanced, sober discussion about the economic, philosophical, and regulatory history of alcohol. Today we're going to be talking about one of my very favorite subjects, British beer. Uh, yeah, the history of beer in the UK, or rather like the series of islands that eventually became the UK, uh, it's really rich and interesting. Uh, a lot of people, when you say great beer, they'll think Germany or maybe Belgium if they're like a weird beer nerd like we are. Uh, but like personally, like I think, uh, and I think like we all kind of agree, uh, the uh, the British, the Scottish, and the Irish make some of the best beer in the world. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, and I think there's one thing that I've learned while researching this podcast is that like, holy crap, British beer is so complex and like <laughs> they really put a lot more effort into it than, than people around the rest of the world do. But I definitely... I got to say, I had never had like a real genuine British beer. I mean, I guess you can count, well, you can't count Guinness as a British beer because it is Irish um, in origin, but I hadn't really ever had a real British beer until we started going to the Queen Vic, which like hashtag sponsor, because there's this bar in DC that we go to all the time that has genuine British beer on tap so called good. the Queen Vic. We should say hashtag desired sponsor. Like yeah. they're not paying us, but we absolutely, like it if just, <laughs> absolutely. Like if you're in it. DC, you should 100% check this place out. It's, it's really the best, but, uh, I think my favorite beer I've ever had is a Scottish beer from Belhaven Brewery in Scotland, which is uh, called a Wee Heavy. It, the beer style is called a Wee Heavy, which is very strong, very malty, and very sweet. Almost like It's almost like drinking caramel. And uh, it's called the Belhaven Wee Heavy. <laughs> Imagine that. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm supposed to talk about my uh, favorite British beer, and it's going to sound really boring because Whatever. mine okay. is also the Bellhaven. <laughs> uh, I mean, hey, Bellhaven, uh, sponsor. <laughs> that might not be us copying as, as, each other as much as just like having it's a really freaking good beer. Like maybe that's just what maybe that's just what it is. And I had never it, known that beer could taste like that. Yeah, same. Like until when I, we until I tried when this. we went to the Queen Vic the first time, and I had a bunch of beers, and like they're all good. Oh yeah, but, like especially that one. Like I was like, this is incredible. Like. No, no beer compares, in my opinion. Yeah, just going to. This. Yeah, I mean, personally, like I, I really like Bellhaven. Yeah, Bellhaven too. I'm also a big fan of Wells. Like they make they're like Wells Bombardier's mm-hmm. this really good brown ale, and they mm-hmm. also make this line of like sort of dessert beers. Kind of, they've got like a sticky toffee pudding flavored one. They've got a oh, banana yeah, red yeah, flavored yeah. one, and I absolutely love them because I am very basic. Yeah, most, um, most beers like that I don't really like usually, but. They do a really good job. It's just fascinating to me that the, the British mindset that oh let's have a beer for dessert, eh? Like I don't that was not well, a British of, accent. The, I have no idea what that was. The rest of the world that was does not a wines for dessert. Accent. So like it's, I don't know. That's I think true. Beer's yeah. better anyway. So yeah, true. I don't blame them. But in any case, uh, beer in the British Isles has a long history and several unique elements that distinguish it stylistically from the beer of other nations. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the UK, for many many years, the pub was a center of community and neighborhood fellowship. And drinking establishments became very important to British, Scottish, and Irish culture uh, because they were a a common area to gather and just discuss the news of the day. Uh, The beverages most typically served in these pubs were top fermented ales. Yeah, and actually I I think it's important here to to step aside for a moment and define what we mean by top fermented. I feel like we've talked about this before, but top fermented, uh, when you brew beer since at least the 1850s when we discovered what yeast was, thanks Louis Pester, um, you typically put yeast into the beer when you're brewing it to aid the fermentation process. And most styles of beer use what's called top fermenting kinds of yeast, which are also known as ale yeast, uh, where the yeast clumps together into a cake that then floats on the top of the beer. The lagers and some other kinds of beers which use lagering yeast 
are bottom fermented or cold fermented because the yeast they use sinks to the bottom and only really works at relatively cold temperatures. Um, the British styles of beer more or less all use the ale yeast, which floats on the top, and they are thus top fermented beers. In our little, yeah, in our little adventures of homebrewing that we've had, we've definitely done ales because they're a lot easier to do. Yeah, it's, you have to keep the. Well, they are easier, cold. but we've still screwed them. Yeah, up. I mean, Just we're still bad at. Yeah, beer. <laughs> beer, beer is an art, and uh, but luckily the British have. Beer is an art, it. and we are poor artists. We're poor artists, <laughs> but luckily the British aren't. Um, yeah, so British beers are basically all ales, at least all authentic British beers. And we say authentic to kind of distinguish from the original styles of British beer, distinguish the original styles of British beer from beers like Carlsberg, uh, which is a British beer in the sense that it's popular consumed in Britain, um, but it's not really from Britain originally. The real beers of the British Isles typically are brewed with ale yeast, and styles like bitters, porters, stouts, and milds were the most popular. Yeah, another thing that makes British beers interesting and unique in many ways, uh, and that makes Britain unique as a as a beer marketplace, is that many British beers are still aged uh, traditionally in casks. In ye olden times, which we say a lot, and basically like we, you mean, say we mean prior to the 1900s, beer was sent from breweries to pubs and restaurants in casks or barrels, and it was unpasteurized, and it was not chilled or artificially carbonated. And in the casks... Beers of the past underwent a process of conditioning, which is commonly called uh, secondary fermentation. And around the 1950s, these traditional wooden casks began to be replaced by metal casks of stainless steel or aluminum, mainly because metal containers are easy to sterilize. In fact, it's possible to sterilize them at all, which, <laughs> which you can't do with a wooden cask. Um, and that made the beer less likely to spoil. And these metal containers eventually became known as kegs, and that's what most draft beers served out of worldwide. And in order to get the beer out of a keg and into a customer's glass, it usually has to be forced out with gas pressure. By the early 1970s, most beer in Britain was kegged beer, filtered, pasteurized, and artificially carbonated or carbed. And most British brewers at this time did use carbon dioxide for dispensing keg beers, and beer that was produced and presented this way contained more dissolved gas in the glass than the traditional ales of the past. Yeah, so what's really interesting is that British consumers didn't really take very well to this new way of producing and consuming beer. Uh, they didn't like the super fizzy, super chilled, filtered beers. Um, so in 1971, a voluntary consumer organization called the Campaign for Real Ale, or CAMRA, uh, was founded to advocate for a return to unfiltered, unpasteurized, uncarbonated ales of the past. Uh, so the crazy thing is that this organization was pretty effective in organizing consumers to convince producers to return to more traditional methods, and it did all this without any kind of government intervention. Uh, Cameras campaigns included uh, promoting small brewing and pub businesses, uh, reforming licensing laws, uh, reducing taxes on beer, and stopping continued co consolidation among local British brewers. Uh, it also makes an effort to promote less common varieties of beer, uh, including stouts, porter, porters, and milds, as well as traditional cider and perry. Yeah, that's really interesting. That actually reminds me of uh, Malcolm Gladwell has a podcast called Revisionist History. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell's still alive? <laughs> Wait, is he like 40 or something? Like, he's not like, that old? He's 50. not an old man. Oh, I thought he was really old for some reason. He's like 50. I thought he was really young, so that's oh. like... Well, with a name like Malcolm Gladwell, I was kind of but thinking... But anyway, the, the brilliant man that is Malcolm Gladwell right. has this great podcast called Revisionist History. And one of the ep most totally re more recent episodes, he has he talks about uh, the campaign against 
McDonald's fries, where McDonald's used to make their fries using like animal fats that were supposedly really, really bad for you. Um, but they tasted really good. And basically the, the reason that McDonald's had to get rid of this was because of like one dude who had a campaign basic kind of voluntarily. He went, ended up, it ended up resulting in government regulation, but it was basically this one dude that went around to all these fast food agency or fast food restaurants and was like, Hey, you better take this out or I'm going to like, like sue you or whatever he was going to do. And it worked like it basically he yeah. was like his own person went to all these places and got them to stop yeah, making camera. fries and making things that way. And it's just crazy how like, how like groups are able to do that. You don't it is always need surprising. the government. Now yeah. they usually have the government to sign, seal and deliver the, put it in stone. Yeah. But a lot of times these things can start with just voluntary people. It is surprising how effective the consumer can be. And, and this camera organization was founded by like four people in a pub. It was just like four guys that were at a pub one time and they were like, Hey, the, doesn't it suck that beer is bad now? And it used to not be bad. Whether or not that's the, <laughs> that's the consumer though is a different, different question. Like, right. Arguably yeah. the consumer still wants the well, it's, McDonald's fries that are bad for you or like maybe the consumer, I don't think in this camera situation. is now a massive organization. Right. It has like 180,000 members or something like right. that. So, but it, sometimes it only takes a few people who are very, very passionate about something and consumers yeah. just aren't as passionate about it. So I'm not yeah. sure it's fair to say that the consumers are powerful, but yeah, I think in this it, circumstance, they it's work. also, we will get into this later, but the truth is that like, we, while you saw like what we said, like with the pilsnerization of beer in America and Germany, some of that did also happen in Britain though, not to as great an extent but by the way josh you said a, a camera um makes an effort to promote traditional or, or less common varieties of beer including cider and perry for those who don't know perry by the way is just is like a cider that's made from pears rather than apples that's a very uh, creative name yeah yeah <laughs> what's this taste like oh it tastes kind of kind of kind of like pear kind of perry <laughs> let's call it perry <laughs> yeah at least um, they spell it a little differently in any case, this camera organization can probably be seen as one of the main reasons why British beer remains good, why the brewer's craft remains sanctified in the British Isles, and why traditional, flavorful, cask-conditioned cask ales have such a strong presence in the Queen's domain. And God bless them, everyone. <laughs> God bless the English and their love of thick, dark beers. Um, that's, you know, that... And like I said, it's not... It's not... You know, frankly, it, they don't have as large a market share in England today as the lager does. But but they have a much larger market share in comparison to other places around the world. So Yeah, and Camera is very anti-keg, but very pro-pub. The fight for the concept of the pub is the sort of community center of British life. Um, and they fight to keep beer from being artificially carbonated, filtered, or served out of a keg. Something like 60% of ale served in pubs and restaurants in the United Kingdom is cask ale. That's ales, so lagers are typically not served in casks, and about 40% of ales are still served from kegs despite camera's efforts. What this comes out to is about 17% of all beer served in the UK is cask beer. Still, in comparison to the situation here in the US or other beer-consuming nations, where nearly all beer is artificially carved and comes out of kegs, that's pretty remarkable. Yeah. I absolutely. Um, and it's th th those numbers are about three years old, so it, it is, it's still going up today. That's crazy. Uh -huh. Yeah. So... We know that the modern British consumer is much more likely to be drinking a traditionally brewed and traditionally uh, presented ale there than anywhere else in the world. But what about the history of British beer, you might be asking? Well, beer has been produced in the British Isles since pre-Roman times. Uh, in the 1980s, archaeologists found evidence about Rome's soldiers in Britain uh, that sustained, sustained themselves on Celtic ale. 
a series of domestic and military accounts written on wooden tablets were dug up at the Roman fort of uh, Vindolanda at uh, Chesterholm in modern Northumbria, uh, dating to between AD 90 and AD 130. Uh, they revealed that the garrison of uh, Vindolanda was buying cerise or beer, as the uh, legions uh, doubtless did throughout the rest of Roman Britain, uh, almost certainly from brewers in the local area. Yeah, one list of accounts from Vindolanda mentions uh, a brewer whose name was Atrectus. Um, and in the Latin, it's Atrectus Cervisarius, Atrectus the brewer. And this is the first named brewer in British history, as well as the first known professional brewer in Britain. And the accounts also show purchases of brasis or braces, that is um, malted wheat, which was doubtless used for brewing. And likely the garrison of troops brought bought the malt from local farmers and then hired a local brewer to make beer from it for the troops. So we see that the proliferation of beer as a, a, a food for, not a food, but a drink of sustenance it was used by soldiers to sustain them during long marches. And in Roman Britain, brewing, both domestic and retail, must have been pretty widespread. Uh, remains indicating the existence of Roman-era malting or brewing operations have been found from Somerset to Northumberland and South Wales to Colchester. Col- I always forget how to pronounce that. So. I, I, it, like, looks I'm like going to guess Colchester. But yeah. I think it's like Cloister because it's British and stupid. Yeah. Uh, in the 3rd third, third <laughs> and 4th centuries AD, Roman Hippocost technology... Hippocost? Hippocost. Hippocost. Those are like the, the hot pipes that piped water. Right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, for supplying central heating to homes, was adapted to Britain to build permanent corn dryers and maltings. And the remains of these double-floored buildings with underground flues are found in Roman towns as well as on Roman farms. Although the process of malting grain and beer, brewing beer may have become more difficult in Britain after the departure of the legions, it certainly wasn't lost. Beer production and consumption continued into the Middle Ages, by which point beer had become so commonplace that it was consumed at pretty much every meal. We've talked before about medieval beer, specifically in our Reinheitsgebot episode, and the facts of medieval German brewing were more or less the same as those of medieval brewing. Uh, but, British brewing. Uh, but unlike Germany, England actually has a much more relaxed regulatory climate towards beer. Uh, the first tax on beer in the UK was the uh, Saladin Tithe, uh, introduced in 1188 by King Henry II in order to raise money for the Crusades. Kind of funny to me that they started taxing beer to raise money for the Crusades. <laughs> <laughs> and unsurprisingly, during the Middle Ages, beer in England really was the product of monasteries. Uh, this reflects trends seen basically everywhere else in Europe. Uh, however, when Henry VIII suppressed and disbanded the monasteries in England, uh, between 1536 and 1541, uh, the production of beer became dissociated from religious houses uh, much earlier than elsewhere in Europe. Mm. Uh, small family companies grew into large conglomerates and guilds, which began the sort of commercial mass production of beer, uh, and pubs began to buy from these producers rather than making their own beer in-house. Uh, by the late 18th century, a system of progressive taxation was introduced based on the strength of the beer um, in terms of cost of ingredients, leading to three distinct gradations. Uh, there's table, small, and strong beer. Uh, mixing these types uh, was used as a way of achieving variation and sometimes avoiding taxation and remained popular for more than a century afterwards. Yeah, and that I classification mean, of, of small and strong and table beers was, you know, carried into well into like the 1930s. So. And I'm and I'm okay with anything that's trying to avoid taxation. So <laughs> hey. I think that's a, that's a good way to go about things. But the Beer House Act of 1830 enabled anyone to brew and sell beer, ale or cider whether from a public house or in their own homes. 
Um, as long as they obtained a moderately priced license of, of under two pounds for beer and ale and one pound for cider uh, without recourse to, to obtaining them from justices of peace as was previously required. The result was the opening of hundreds of new pubs throughout England and the reduction of the influence on the large breweries. This led to the creation of a strong culture of local craftsmanship and the flowering of a beer, craft beer culture in England. Interestingly, one of the motivations of the act was to reduce the abusive overconsumption of gin, which had become very popular in England at the time. Funny that the government felt that making beer cheaper and easier for people to produce would get them to drinking the weaker stuff and keep them off the strong spirits. Yeah, and it is actually the, 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 the cultural um, <clears throat> stigma. The cultural stigma that surrounded gin was really funny because they thought, oh, beer's fine, and if you drink beer, you're a good person, but if you drink gin, then you're a bad person. Um, Which, I don't know, it's like... like I feel like there's kind of the same. Like we see that in some cases in America. I suppose. Like, I mean, like if you drink, if you drink like really cheap beer, you're bad. But if you drink wine all the time, like it's not necessarily seen as. Yeah, bad. it's true. Well, we do like assign different like socio-cultural mm-hmm. values to types of alcohol. Yeah, like yeah. whiskey. I mean, if you drink whiskey, you're fancy. If you drink vodka or whatever, whatever. You're, you're trashy. trashy. <laughs> yeah. You know, so yeah. you see that now too in America. Yeah. I, and you know, here's the thing. It's really interesting to me. The history of British beer is a cycle of like increasing conglomeratization and, and macro production. And then the government steps in and suddenly there's this explosion of small brewing. And you see this cycle happening in England many, many times, like three or four or five different times. It sure seems like the opposite of the cycle in America. Yeah, it, it's kind of strange. But, uh, you know, then it, it, the, the large brewers they lose power because of some regulatory change and then small brewing takes off again and then those places get big and then the government breaks them up again. But anyway, um, demand for this export style of pale ale, which had become known as India pale ale developed in England around 1840 as the sort of British empire took off and India pale ale became a popular product in in England. So IPAs did, they did originate from England. Um, some brewers eventually dropped the term India in the late 19th century, but records indicate that these pale ales retained the features of earlier IPAs. A pale and well-hopped style of beer was developed in the Burton-on-Trent region, which was England's like beer region because the water there was very, very good, was suitable for making good beer. Um, and this this sort of Burton-on-Trent hoppy pale pale ale beer was developed in uh, in parallel with ipas elsewhere and previously englishmen had drunk mainly stout and porter but this bitters which was the beer that came from burton on trent became very popular and came to predominate and and bitter is still probably the main style of english beer uh or the main style of english ale anyway that's drunk in england um and beers from burton as i said were, were considered of a particularly high quality due to the uh, synergy between the malt and hops in the use and the local water chemistry because it had gypsum in the water. And this extensively hopped lighter beer was easier to store and transport, and that made it uh, easier for larger breweries to produce more of it and transport it further. So again, we see the cycle of the, the brewery starting to get larger and push out smaller competitors. Also, the switch from pewter tankards to glassware also led drinkers to prefer lighter beers. Um, Why was that? I... I guess it's because it's more aesthetically pleasing and the beer is clearer. Um, oh, yeah, makes sense. But the development of rail links to Liverpool enabled brewers to export their beer throughout the British Empire. And Burton retained sort of absolute dominance in pale ale brewing. 
for quite a while. At its height, about one quarter of all beer sold in Britain was produced there until a chemist named C.W. Vincent discovered the process of Burtonization to reproduce the chemical composition of the water from Burton-upon-Trent. And that gave any brewery in England the capability to brew a pale ale. So there you go. It's the uh, origin story of the most overrated beer style in uh, <laughs> drinking. Uh, well, I mean, IPAs are a different thing from, from a, a bitter style beer. But I, well, I mean, we, we're talking I, about like, the origins of IPAs. I do well. agree. IPAs are a little bit, a little bit overrated, yeah. They're a, lot, they're a lot overrated, but... Yeah. Okay, all right, here's the thing. Can we talk about this for just like a second? Yeah, like, absolutely. I, I know that it's like, I love, I talk how much about, I love dark beers, but like IPAs can be extremely good. Oh, I agree. I've had a couple of really good IPAs. Yeah. But it's just that I everyone makes well. an IPA. So like 90% of them are bad. Yeah. And when I go to the store and I'm like, I want to drink some craft beers, let's see what they have. It's like, oh, here's 50 IPAs, IPAs and then like IPA, 10 IPA, other IPA, kinds. Something good IPA. Yeah, it's true. It, it does get a little... Yeah, and bit of a I pain guess in some the butt. of them are like terrible, but like they all kind of taste the same for the most yes, part. Yes, they very well. Hobby. They usually replace they're replacing flavor with just a lot more with more hops. Lupulin, yeah, yeah. generally <laughs> more lupulin and, and and just hop bomb and you know. But every so often you'll come across a gem that's like, wow, this is very good. I have had some truly truly tremendous IPAs. Yeah, Wyatt's father. Um, what is it? I think Chatty Monks. Chatty, Chatty Monks. Yeah, Chatty their Monks. endoplasmic reticulum. One of the best beers I've ever had in my life. Yeah, mm-hmm. but. But anyways, anyway. uh, so throughout the early and mid-19th centuries, uh, British beer grew weaker and was more heavily taxed due to the influence of the two world wars, uh, which raised the price of ingredients, and uh, as well as the uh, temperance movement. Large megabreweries, kegged beers, and uh, foreign-produced lagers began to uh, sort of become increasingly popular British consumers. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, the foundation of the camera organization that we mentioned earlier kind of helped turn back the tide around the 1970s and 80s. Uh, and this trend towards the consumption of real ales uh, combined with modern changes in the palate of consumers and uh, as well as like regulatory changes around 2002 um, that gave us some tax advantages to smaller breweries. Um, so that all led to another explosion of craft brewing in England. Uh, so the British beer market had the added advantage of not having lost as many independent breweries as the U.S. during the interwar years, uh, or seen as large a change in the national taste in beer. Um, I think that's probably at least in part due to the fact that, like, I don't believe they had like a full-on no, prohibition, a prohibition like we did, because no. um, mm-hmm. that really—I mean, we, t- we talked about this in the prohibition episode—that really disrupted American brewing and yes. it basically it, made it so that only it destroyed huge breweries, craft brewing in America. Exactly. Yeah. Um, which so that's that's not to say that no change in national taste occurred during this time though. And in modern Britain, lagers, which are often called export beers, maintain the largest percentage of the beer market. Yeah, but, like Carling and Foster are the two largest beers. Which seems rather, rather unfortunate, but yeah. traditional ales are still extremely popular in the British Isles, and the old ways have survived. And they will continue to survive as long as there are stout Englishmen drinking in dimly lit pubs. And muttering about the coming return of King Arthur, I did not write that. <laughs> that's, a, that's like that's like a true sentence I've ever I've ever heard. <laughs> that's so a CS we now Lewis know who quote. wrote the script, uh, but it's, it's a good sentence. I'm going to say it again. Uh, British beer will continue to survive as long as there are stout Englishmen drinking in dimly lit pubs and muttering about the coming return of King Arthur. I love that. <laughs> I love that. I'm not going to say it a third time because yeah. no one wants to hear it. But uh, the economic and regulatory pressures, which uh, led to light, flavorless beer, flavorless beer. Yeah. Okay. Fair. Yeah. Light, flavorless beers. You know. Yeah, that's that's fair. Like every beer <laughs> that like, was drunk in America like from 1920 on. So the ones that are predominant in in the United States right now uh, were not present in England, and the result has been the survival of many styles of excellent, flavorful beers. 
uh, which harken back to the time when the sun never set on the British Empire. Yeah, and in many ways, maybe because of their long period of world domination, British beer making practices have been have been have been influential on the practice of brewing across the world. Styles like like we mentioned prior stouts, porters, uh, many of the different kinds of pale ales. These all originated in England and. Um, they are widely replicated across the world today. But British hops in particular uh, enjoyed a long era of huge popularity, and English hop varietals like Fuggles or Golding Hops tend to have subtler floral aromas um, than hops grown in other regions. And this could be because the cool maritime climate of the British Isles means that British-grown hops have less uh, of this chemical called myrcene in them uh, than the same varieties grown elsewhere, which allows more delicate, complex aromas to come through. That's what the like pretentious like hop experts say, uh, I. But you know it could be true. These so hops, like the beer version of the wine taste. Yeah, similar, I don't know about the beer beer version of beer sommelier probably. But um, mm-hmm. anyway, these kinds of hops like Fuggles and Golding are still used when making many styles of beer like porter stouts and and many of the other kinds of ales. Although in modernity, American hops with their very citrusy flavors have become very popular across across the globe as well and in England. And many English breweries now will have an American-style IPA or a New World-style craft ale that's very hoppy and citrusy. Is that to appeal to the taste of Americans in Britain? Or is that to appeal to like it's probably, British people who want to feel American? Yeah, it's probably to appeal to the taste. It's probably the same reason why lots of American craft breweries have some English-style ale. Right, that makes sense. You know, it's to, yeah. There's still some, some interrelation across the Commonwealth or the former... Come or why, like, every American craft brewery makes an Oktoberfest beer, whether it's, it's like, true. really Oktoberfest Which or not. Which pisses me off, <laughs> by the way. I don't know. Like, I, I love Oktoberfest. Oktoberfest. Like, I love I love the fest beer and, and the Martzen style of beer. And when October comes, you bet your butt I'm buying some of that Sierra Nevada Oktoberfest. I have some in my fridge right really now. Good, I'm going to go drink some after we finish recording this. But, like, it pisses me off that, that like... Oktoberfest is a specific thing, and it's it's like cultural appropriation to call your regular, normal, like, Martzen beer an Oktoberfest well, beer. How do, you know, how do you know the people aren't making it are German? They could be German. Well, it's and some of them probably are. Something like 40% of the people in America have German ancestry. But, like, I have German ancestry. My last name is Brackville. <laughs> it's yeah, as German make, as it gets. You could make an Oktoberfest beer, and it's not cultural appropriation. I suppose. I mean, it... Whether that's the thing or... Our podcast not is not about privilege issues or cultural appropriation whatsoever um, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway <laughs> anyway that you're right that is part of it's the it's the feeling of exoticness that i'm sure that's the reason mm-hmm. why there are so many english brewers that make american or new world style yeah that makes sense ales yeah and i think it's really fascinating to me uh the way that good beer has survived in england basically it seems like it's kind of a combination of both private advocacy groups like camera as well as regulations that favor small craft producers like how do we feel about that? Well, I have a lot of thoughts As and always. opinions. <laughs> but I do feel like, like I said, there is a cycle to British history where beer begins to become conglomeration. Conglomerations start to take over. And then the government steps in and says, hey, what about the small little guy? And there are a lot of people in, in England and in the British Isles in general, that really deeply care about the concept of the pub as a communitarian organization, where everyone meets and everyone drinks the local beer brewed by the guy from down the street and his three sons and carried in the truck run by Reggie, the truck guy, or whatever. And, you know, like, that kind of localism and that kind of communitarian 
instinct is, in my opinion, in my sort of distributist opinion, something worth protecting. And I'm glad that the English government historically has protected. I'm just a little skeptical that regulations are actually doing that because in America, well, in America, I mean, gen- you see, you've seen the history. I've seen like, what you've written down in our script. Um, but in America, like, ouch. Gen- <laughs> in America, generally, like, regulations almost always make things worse in the sense of localism. Yeah. So, like, nowadays, well, it's not, it's not regulate; it's more tax policy. Sure, but nowadays you see like craft brew, craft brewing has exploded. And it's only after deregulation that this happened. Mm. So, like, the, the just amazing amount of brew pubs and, and, and craft breweries and, like, these great local businesses have only been possible because the federal government or state governments have been like, actually, we're not going to regulate the crap out of you. We're going to kind of let you do your own thing. Mm. So, unless there's, like, some extremely qualitative difference between the regulations, and there might be, I'm willing to, I'm willing to accept the possibility... I'm just a little skeptical that like regulations yeah, are the things that are keeping local local pubs in business. Well, if there's, like this, if there's, yeah, this seems like kind of mixed in in terms of like mm-hmm. a little bit of regulation, some deregulation. Like we talked a little right. bit about like, licensing yeah. before this happened, which is yeah. like still a big issue here in the right. U.S. And that's more of a deregulation mm-hmm. than regulation, it's just a, a change in regulation. That is fair. I yeah, and from a regulatory a like process point of view, deregulation is regulation. Right. Yes, technically, but. Yeah, I don't know. But yeah, I mean, I think camera also plays a big role. If America had, and America does, I mean, we have the Brewers. I'm certain that we do. We have the Brewers Association, which is mm-hmm. basically like our version of camera. Mm-hmm. I just don't think, I just they just don't seem as And here's the thing. Powerful. Like, oh, not at all. Beer doesn't have to come out of a cask to be good. Like, you, there are, right. as I've said before, there are dozens, hundreds of truly, truly excellent American beers, and most of them come out of kegs. But... I think there's something to be said for the desire to protect the traditional way of producing and drinking beer that this camera organization stands for. Well, because the beer that we drink, like a British pub in America, is coming out of a keg. That's not I think typically out of it is. Yeah. Some, I mean, I see, some, it, I see it on tap. It's not coming out of a keg. Are they hand pumping it? I don't think so. Okay. Well, if they're hand pumping it, it's probably coming from a cask. And I, at the Queen Vic, I think most mm. of the beers are kegged. Yeah, they're and kegged. There's, they're, yeah. But there's lots of, like, this is a depth of granularity that I didn't want to engage in and maybe we'll talk about this at some later date but there are different ways of serving the beer and yeah, i have had cash keg, scales out of in the u.s casks. where there is okay. yeah, i wasn't sure if bars i have here. i've been to this the slippery rock uh, brewing company north country oh, brewing and slippery rock they have one that is out of a cask okay cool but yeah, yeah, yeah i do remember yeah. that yeah. but so i mean it's always it's usually warm too right? yeah well it's yeah. not warm it's served at cellar temperature which is about 50 degrees but that's but still it's, warm. it's warm in comparison than, to yeah, right. 40 degrees yeah which is how beer is typically served in the U.S. Yeah, but Americans are generally, like, we like our drinks cold, but then on the world, it's not necessarily as true. Yeah, and I do have to say, I really, one thing they do do at the Queen Big is they serve it at cellar temperature. It's served a little bit more warm than the typical American beer, which I love. I think yeah. it, it's, like, it's perfect, that it, yeah. first I mean, couple it, sips, and then the beer warms up as you hold it in your hand, and by the end, you're tasting the full flavor of the beer. It also gets you to drink it faster, because you don't want it to get too warm. Mm-hmm. Which... That's good business. That cash money. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I, yeah, I personally love the idea of serving living beer. Because one thing that you see when, when beer is kegged is that it's killed. It's killed off. The, the yeast culture in the beer is dead. The beer is, has typically been filtered or fined uh, or even centrifuged to get the sediment out of it. Um, and it's not alive. It's not living beer. 
when you homebrew, what you do is you're bottle conditioning the beer, and that's where the carbonation comes from. It doesn't come from injecting CO2 into it into, in a keg. It comes from the natural reactive processes of the yeast. Right. And when you pour that beer out of the bottle or out of a cask, if you're in an English pub, that beer is still alive. And it to me, there's something to be said for that process because I think it imparts flavors and it, it's a, a different sort of beer drinking experience than you get when you're drinking dead beer that's just had carbonation forced into it with chemicals right you know i, I do have to say, like i'm really a big fan of like the whole local aspect of all this like you know i, I love like living here in, like northern virginia where there's like a really good and kind of like the dc area like a great like craft brewing scene true um, although like, that's I, true of every city in this country oh, yeah, no. that's just awesome but, like i you know i've been to a couple like tap rooms and like brewer pubs like all by local breweries like it's 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 definitely like a more community feeling like i uh mm-hmm. went to the um the tasting room at uh port city brewing out in alexandria a few months ago oh, it was great beer. it was a you know cool local place like the guy gave me a free beer if i said i'd bring more people back which i still need to do um, yeah, um I, I really i really enjoy that kind of local aspect i and i agree honestly i think that that's when anything and we've talked about this before that in my opinion i'm i'm like a crazy Hayekian localist but like when you have something that was grown at a farm that is half a mile away from you or a beer that was brewed at a brewery where you know the dude that makes it or his uncle is your boss you know like that kind of thing that transaction is or brother in John's case uh, but that transaction is way more valuable to me than buying a beer that was produced or buying anything that was produced miles and miles and miles away and that you have no idea who made it or how it was made and you could never go to the facility and see it being made. I think that um, one of the problems of capitalism is that it, in pursuit of efficiency, we reduce everything to uh, mass production and, and everything to a, to an economy of scale. And I'm going to agree with you on everything but the last point because I think depending on how we're defining capitalism and that's a very complicated subject but like i think at least as if you're if you see like the way that the beer industry in america is now i think what's beautiful about capitalism is it does allows for both mm-hmm. so like you can have the cheap crappy mass produced budweiser beer if you want and it's cheap and it's and it's, if you want a lot of beer it's it's fine but you also have the reduced regulations and you mm-hmm. have the entrepreneurship and you have the people who want good quality beer, the, the consumers who are willing to pay for it, those will also thrive. And you can also have the buildup of localism and you can have the buildup of this communitarian uh, sense of, of brew pubs and things like that. And you can have both. It's not, it's not you don't have think, to, you don't need a trade off. Most I mean, people. Really, like, in terms of like specifically the beer market in the US, like the whole like mass market thing, like that has really more to do with like a ripple effect of prohibition than true. any kind of capitalism true, thing. Like, like as we've seen, like the beer market get less regulated and more capitalist, like we've seen this like greater variety of like local options. Yeah. And yeah, that's fair of beer. I think beer might be the one of the few places where your argument is correct though, John. Because when you see other like other types of goods, like when it comes down to it for most people, it's a, it's a it's a price thing. Most people base their decisions off based off of the price of varying goods. So if you can go to Walmart and buy a sweatshirt produced in a, you know, hellish warehousing sweatshop in Bangladesh by child laborers 
that you can buy for five dollars uh most people are probably going to do that and most people probably aren't going to go down to like john the sweatshop makers john the sweatshop john the sweatshirt manufacturer in cleveland ohio who's stitching sweatshirts by hand maybe there's something to be said for the increased efficiency that you get by you know having massive distribution chains but again i don't think people's comparative advantage and everything but the evidence actually supports that because i think as people become more wealthy within a capitalist system a lot of people become more ethical in their consumption or they return to craftsmanship and they return to craftsmanship and that's a very important for people so there's a lot of people out there who really want to know where their clothes come from they're willing to pay a lot more money now because they but the ordinary person doesn't right what about the the people in the lower middle class sure but the ordinary person just couldn't afford clothes before true so like they couldn't afford as many that's That's the thing that people a lot of people fail to understand is that like the, the in bottom, the olden times, bottom, people had like three suits. The bottom portion of, of the economy, three dresses. Of, the bottom wore. income of consumers are never going to be able to buy ethically, and they they never did. That's like some sort of weird mythos that we have that like back in the ye olden times, people bought ethically and bought locally. It's they just didn't buy stuff because they didn't have yeah, the money. It's that is actually the true. top echelons yeah. have always been able to buy really nice, high quality local stuff, and so yeah, there's an argument that maybe the middle class it can go one way or the other depending on policy, depending on culture. Um, and I think you, I think there's a there's a point to be made for the middle where like maybe capitalism can push you a little bit further one way or the other, but I think I think it's more cultural maybe. than a policy thing. Um, I think if you open up regulations, you open up markets, people are going to go one way or the other, and I don't think you should really be using policy to try to push people towards localism or away from localism. I mean, I I sort of agree. I'm sort of persuaded by the argument that you should use policy to push people towards localism because at the end of the day, I think what that does is it, it improves the, the, the lives of people in your community. And that's what the polis is about is it's about the community of the people that are close to you and that you can commonly identify with as belonging to your city or community or your town. I think there's an argument there. I just don't think that's possible in America because that's what, that's what policy is. is It's group decision-making for the polis. I agree. That's ideal, but I don't like that's, I don't think that's literally, I think it's literally impossible in America because of the way our regulatory structure is set up. And the size of our country and whatnot. Right. So I think that's our show for today. Uh, If you enjoyed it, feel free to share us on social media. Uh, You can like us on Facebook as the Whiskey Rebels Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Whiskey Rebcast. Uh, Some exciting news. We're now on iTunes and Stitcher, uh, which means you can now find us on podcast apps that people actually use. Uh, So be sure to uh, leave us a review on iTunes since that makes it easier for other people to find the show. Uh, This has been the Whiskey Rebels. I'm Josh Evans. I'm Drew Brechtel. And I'm John Nelson. Enjoy our podcast responsibly. Hey, hey.